my sweet spot and where I have the most fun is early stage. And we like to be the earliest. We're like known amongst our peers in the industry where if you meet some great entrepreneurs or great engineers and it's too early for, for your fund, you introduce them to us because we're the crazy people who will write the first 25K check, write the first 50K check or 100K check to two people in an idea. Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. We invest in two people and an idea. It's not a statement we heard a lot during the crypto market downturn, but in this episode, I sit down with Alon Gorin, who's the founding partner at Draper Gorin Blockchain, and he explains why he, Tim Draper, and their partners are bullish on Web3 projects, even those without product market fit, and sometimes even without a product. Alon talks about the launch of their new venture studio and the exciting opportunities in the current blockchain and crypto market, especially their passion for early stage investing and the importance of finding founders who are truly passionate and dedicated to their ideas. We also discuss the potential of blockchain technology to revolutionize traditional industries, the accredited investor rules in the US, and how it creates a more decentralized and inclusive financial system. Alan and I focus on the crypto investment landscape in this episode, but please remember folks, our podcasts are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should always consult their own advisors before making these types of decisions. Last thing before we get to the episode, the Chainalysis Links Conference is coming up soon. It'll be April 9th and 10th in New York City. We've got a terrific lineup of speakers, and we just announced a suite of amazing training sessions, including Crypto and DeFi Fundamentals, Blockchain Analytics 101, and How to Do Human Trafficking Analysis on the Blockchain. These classes are gonna be taught by some of the best in the industry. I hope to see you there, and of course, you can find the link to register in the show notes. Today I'm joined by a really special guest, Alan Gorin, who is the founding partner of a new venture studio called Draper Gorin Blockchain. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, very, very excited to, to hang with you. Well, let's not bury the lead. You just launched a new venture studio in the last two months, I think, at the, the time we're recording here. Given market conditions, both within crypto and kind of the broader macro setting, it feels to me as a weird time to launch a new a new accelerator but i'm guessing you've got some really good reasons why this is a great time why don't we start there yeah i mean it's a bit of a continuation of what i've been doing over the years i've been partnered with tim draper for a very long time incubating accelerating companies and running an early stage fund in our space and as we were getting towards the end of the life cycle of the last fund was preparing you know the future of what's next and decided to continue on this path and now isn't an, is an awesome time because of the the current environment right because of the environment over the last few months which you know if you're a diehard if you were here even for a minute but but we've been here for a long time and you believe in the space long term we're still crazy early and my specialty my sweet spot and where I have the most fun is early stage and we like to be the earliest we're like known amongst our peers in the industry where if you meet some great entrepreneurs or great engineers and it's too early for for your fund you introduce them to us because we're the crazy people who will write the first 25k check write the first 50k check or 100k check to two people in an idea and we love it because that's where we can get in the trenches and almost act as co-founders and so 
There's never a better time to do that than when the sort of tourists and looky-loos and people who followed the hype are gone because there isn't, you know, free money from like falling from the sky right now and valuations are more reasonable. And, you know, the diehards who are here for the absolute right reasons are here still, right? They're, they're here because it's where they want to be because they believe in this space. And so that's who we want to hang out with. That's who we want to work with. And so now is the greatest time to be incubating companies or investing in, in early stage companies and finding the, the true believers. Yeah, I knew you'd have a good reason. I'm super <laughs> curious about, you know, you said you go to the earliest of early in terms of stage of company, two people in an idea, and you're showing up to write a check. How do you pick the good people yeah. and good ideas when there's nothing there? Because this is pre-product. Like we don't, yeah. I'm imagining you're not seeing a lot of product market fit or you're not looking at metrics. You're not, none of the normal things that I would yeah. kind of evaluate. Like, is there a business here? Is there a successful business here? Can it grow with more capital? You're way upstream of that. Like what's that process of decision-making look like for yeah, you? Yeah, you know, we don't always get it right, but for me, it's always the people and that they're attacking a problem that, that actually exists, that's actually a big an interesting problem. And it's a bit non-scientific, right? It's it's a passion, right? It's I understand that if somebody did come to me with here is our exact plan of what's happening, right? In one month, this is going to happen. In six months, this is going to happen. In two years, this is going to happen. And in seven years, we're going to sell to JP Morgan, right? I, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's all good, right? I mean, it could be that's very educational and properly done. And, and you know, like, right, a business plan um, when you're going to college or learning how to write a business plan is, is one thing. And that can be important, right, to be organized and to have an idea of where you want to go and what you want to do. But having done enough startups and being involved in enough startups, you know that you don't know. You know that your plan is all good until you start to execute. And even ideas are fine until you start to execute. And everybody um, has a little bit of this, like, my idea is very precious feeling. But what you'll learn is the more experienced people are, the more open they are to just throwing the ideas out there and sharing the ideas publicly because they know the secret sauce, the special part is in executing the idea. So when I meet companies and they give me their idea, and I say two people in an idea, but we're in these times where I grew up in this startup world where if you wanted to do something, a lot of times you would need money because even just having web servers was expensive. Like pre-cloud, you had to like get a server at a data center and, and you'd talk to a company or you yourself would be like, okay, we've got to do a deal to get a rack of servers at the LAX data center. And to do this online karaoke company, we're going to need 18 dedicated servers. Like something that lives in your browser today would actually cost a lot of money and effort. Or like you would run your own server at home or something. And that couldn't actually be your web server because, you know, you're home internet connection wasn't good enough for that. So everything that was hard back in the day is something very simple we take for granted now. So two people, an idea can actually be a prototype, a product, a something there. And so there's something to show for it. So I can judge people a little bit based on what they've done with nothing at the beginning to prove to me it's, it's a worthwhile thing or to prove to themselves it's a worthwhile thing. And then the biggest part really is, are these people, people we think can attack this? And do we want to be locked in a room with them for the next 10 years, right? Because yeah. 
startups take a long time. And if you're an early stage investor in startups, you're looking at a time horizon of, you know, on average, like eight years to a potential exit. And so if you're coming even earlier when we are, we have to assume this is a long game. And and if they fail, I want to be first in line to back their next thing too. Um, so I want to be working with someone who I want that long-term relationship with, who I like. And so a lot of those early meetings and things like that have very little to do in terms of due diligence, you know, with like, like you said, with metrics, because the metrics don't exist quite yet. They might have be some high level metrics. So I understand that they even know the market they're going after or where where it is. But usually it's them giving me an addressable market and me saying you're thinking too small because we're thinking in the current world. We're thinking in a specific categories. But I believe in a world where the blockchain space and crypto in general is, is ubiquitous. This, right? Nobody talks about launching an internet startup anymore. But that was 10 years ago, people would talk and be like, what are you doing? Be like, oh, I'm launching a tech startup or an internet startup. We're, yeah. util- we're utilizing social media to raise money on the internet. Like we would say these things in all seriousness. But at that point, even just 10 years ago, you were not watching a full length movie on Amazon. So yeah. think about how much has changed. So in 10 years ago, we would talk about tech startups or internet startups in 10 years, I don't think people are going to say I'm launching a blockchain startup or a crypto startup. They're just going to be launching a new finance company or they're going to be launching a collectibles marketplace or a a game. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just going to be ubiquitous because it ubiquitous and even all this AI stuff is going to accelerate it. People are looking at AI like it's a, um, a new fad, but the more that exists, the more we're gonna need proof, right? The more we're gonna actually need proof that things are real. And yeah. I think that that's the world we're gonna live in, so yeah. Yeah, you're talking about, to me, I pulled two parts out of that. One was you want people that you're actually excited to work with. I would guess you're probably looking for people who have some shared vision to the one you just talked about, this future ubiquity of blockchain, but probably also have some really unique industry technology market insight that is leading them to want to build a company maybe market insights i think you are coming at it from an analytical point of view and i think there's a pretty high correlation between founders who aren't doing it like for the money they're doing it because they're very passionate they might not understand even the full market that's not always the most important thing but they're doing it because they have to or they're doing it for these reasons not because they think this is going to be the billion dollar company idea they might also think that or they might sell that but they truly are there for for the right reasons and it's really funny because some of the biggest founders in the world have not done things for that reason And people who do come to you with all the numbers and all the things, and then they tell you that's why they're starting the company. If I believe that they're doing it for that reason, it's harder to get behind them because the second things aren't working out because, you know, things aren't going to work out every time and there's going to be crappy times. There's going to be this and there's going to be that, but I have your back. That's very, very true. The startup world, right? Like it's always harder to raise money than you expect. It's always harder to get customers than you expect. It's always harder to breakthrough than than you expect. And so you need founders who are these true believers who aren't coming to you with the reason why this is a great idea and the reason I want to start this company is because over the next three years, the $7 trillion alternative investment market is going to go digital. That's true, right? (laughs) But if the main problem and reason they're doing it is because of really practical reasons, there's going to be a moment six months from now when they go like, for very practical reasons, I need to quit and get a job because that's a more practical decision, right? And you have to have somebody who is accountable to that passionate idea over 
very simple, practical reasons. It really is a big, big driver, at least for us at that crazy early stage, because at this crazy early stage, things are going to change dramatically over a year or two or three with where they're going and what they're doing. And you need that person whose North Star is a real pain point or a real problem or passion they're they're going after, right? It sounds like you're looking for somebody that has almost an irrational need to create yeah. a company and a solution it's, or a product offering beyond you know meeting your your traditional like Maslow's hierarchy of needs you're going to ignore <laughs> some a thousand of those. percent and yeah. it's I think we all have it with pat certain passions right like I'm I'm right now wearing a Nardcore t-shirt Nardcore it stands for Oxnard Hardcore Oxnard is a small town near where I grew up where these punk bands called themselves Nardcore bands. So like created their own little category. To this day, I love Nardcore bands. I'm obsessed with punk rock at a very, very irrational way. And one of the kind of tropes in punk rock, talked about this before, is like, People didn't want to write like love songs and things like that. That wasn't cool. It's all a lot of politics, a lot of like youth culture stuff. But there's like a whole category of songs of basically the love of punk rock. Like, like there's a whole category. You're doing it a lot of times, not because you love it, not because you want it, but because you absolutely have to and you don't even know exactly why. It's just like who you are to your core. That's how a lot of really passionate founders are, right? Like, I've used uh, the example before, like I said, something about like collectibles marketplace or something like that. You can talk about why it's a good business, but the person who would run a business like that isn't necessarily the kind of person that understands the metrics and the numbers and can optimize it and make it better and grow it and whatever. But the best person to launch a company like that is someone who's absolutely obsessed with those collectibles, right? Like somebody who yeah. absolutely like grew up collecting comic books and to this day has their collection of comic books. They didn't buy any of them originally because they went, ooh, the Spawn number one comic book I'm buying today is gonna be worth $1 more tomorrow. That's a part of it, but they like needed it. It was a part of their like culture, their soul, their thing, right? And that's the right person who launches a marketplace like that on day one. I have a copy of Spawn number one. Just I do that. too. <laughs> You know, it's funny until my mom finally, like after many years, boxed up my room at their house and made it, you know, like a a little office for herself and guest room for, for when people come to visit. The Spawn number one comic book was one of the ones I had up on my wall, actually. Like it was important to me because it was the most I had spent on a comic book. I think I bought it for like $10 at a comic book convention before Comic Con was a thing, you know, it was important. (laughs) <laughs> I think I got all the first season of Vaughn, like at bottom off the newsstand as they were coming out. So back to the venture fund, do you look for particular like uh, industry trends that you try and invest in? Like what what is getting you excited about what's happening in the world of, of blockchain and crypto today? I, I try to focus and, and what's great is having, you know, a rounded set of partners too in this world. But I try to focus on the things that I just get really super passionate about myself, right? So we've done things where, for example, in the past, I've met incredible entrepreneurs who come to me with ideas, something like, I don't know, medical records on the blockchain or something like that. And there's two things that happen. But like the main thing is I look at that and I go, holy crap, I love this person. I would love to be a part of this crew and have them be a part of our crew and and get to grow this with them. But then I go, I don't know how to add value here. 
I don't know anything about this world, and it's not something I can find myself getting so deeply passionate about and going down the rabbit hole that we've never done any of those deals because it just hasn't been that. And a part of it also has to do with our business model. Our first check when it goes to companies, it's kind of similar-ish. I think we do things specifically for this space that align us with the founders way, way better, but similar-ish in kind of economic terms to like what a Techstars or Y Combinator does. And so I'm asking for a disproportionate amount of equity in a company, at least compared to like an angel investor who just writes a 25K check. So if I'm gonna ask for more, I have to be willing to not just give more and bring more to the table, but I do an internal talk every time we bring on a new company. We have like a sort of investor committee team call thing. It's like an exercise we do out loud and try to keep each other accountable to is what are we bringing to the table? How are we gonna add this value? And how can, if it was our company, could we justify giving this other group 5%, 8%, 10% of our company? So if we're gonna willing to take it, we better bring it because we can't have the reputation of those other guys. One, I mean, they have good reputations in their own ways, but I don't think it applies to crypto very well. I don't think it applies to our culture in our space very well, right? For the most part, I think they add a lot of value, but they add value for a short period of time and then it's a logo on the wall, right? That's not me. It just doesn't make sense to me. So for us, we don't do like a three, four month program and send people off on their way. We do disproportionately help them more the earlier on you are in a company, but we're tied to the company forever. We stay close to them and we try and participate as much as possible. We're very active. So it's it's really important to us that we know and understand it. So, so going back to, to the yeah. real question of categories, right? The things I'm really crazy obsessed with is decentralization from a, just a high level freedom standpoint. I truly believe that stuff. I'm very passionate about it. I want every person in the world, no matter where they're born, to have the same opportunities that we get because we're so freaking lucky to be a, to have been born in the United States. And then the problems with our government that I'm totally willing to highlight and argue and debate and, and all that, crypto fixes that too, right? If, if we do it right. So I'm super passionate about any ideas that, that kind of go that direction. But I also can see past fun stuff too, right? Like the NFTs and and how they apply, not just because it's fun and I liked collecting comic books and whatever growing up. And so I like the metaverse and all of those things. But I think they have an application kind of like when FaceTime did a better version of, of Skype. What it did was it kind of fixes the same problem that technology creates, right? Like technology makes us less intimate with each other as human beings. Now we can work from home. We cannot see each other. We can be insulated and still get all the things we need to live and whatever without leaving the house. But what that did was it made it so that you can have really tight, close feeling, emotional relationships with people no matter where they are in the world, right? So I had family on the other side of the world growing up. I'd see them once a year if I was lucky that year. And we would talk on the phone. Sometimes it was really expensive. If I could have talked to my grandparents over FaceTime the way that I talk to my cousin that lives in New York, that's like my brother. That's a a big thing. I think the metaverse and and some of these things we do will have the capacity to enable that kind of stuff. But I also can see that, you know, the contracts used in an NFT could also apply to intellectual property rights. And that also means that it could be used for the title of a home. And I think that I can see past where 
the more we develop this technology, even for these rudimentary, silly, fun ideas, the more that technology can be used for bigger and more exciting things. My last company I did when I quit my day jobs and uh, started doing my own businesses was a crowdfunding company, for lack of a better word. The word crowdfunding didn't exist back then. We called it social fundraising. I actually started it while I was working at MySpace back in the day. But <laughs> when I did that company, I had basically launched a way for people to raise money for their small businesses on the internet. And anyone who understood securities laws or lawyers that I knew and things like that came to me and were like, dude, you're breaking securities laws. This is illegal. And that was insane to me. I had no idea these rules and laws existed that like accredited investor laws, you know, like public solicitation rules and laws about what you can can and can't say on the internet. To me, that was just so offensive and insane and antithesis to the American dream. I was taught and raised as the kid of immigrants who came to this country, started their own businesses and things like that. It was like offensive. And we've come to terms or we have to come to terms that we live in America. A lot of the companies live in America. Certain categories of products like I don't know, real estate, won't be able to be fully DeFi, decentralized, anonymous, no matter what we want, because, you know, even in the world of digital jurisdictions, there's still going to be countries and land and stuff like that, right? So how do we use this technology to make that burden less of a burden? And how do we push those buttons to compete and force the hand of banks and governments to, to change the rules and make it so that all of us can participate whether or not we're, we're millionaires, right? Because two important things, right? Startups and early and, and small businesses do employ the most amount of people and create the most jobs in the world, whether it's here in the United States or abroad. So that's really important to foster and really important to help, right? We want new startups to come in and, and, and push the buttons of the incumbents. And then two, it is also the greatest category, going back to numbers, early stage venture investing is the highest performing category. It's the longest and the riskiest, but it is the greatest way to create generational wealth. And if you're in the United States and you're not a millionaire, you're not allowed to participate in that. Yeah. That's not okay. Some of those things like the real world assets and tokenization stuff, which I feel like is a Trojan horse to those things. On the surface level, it's like, okay, we're playing with the big banks. We're acknowledging that they exist and we're enabling them in a way. But I think that the more this becomes ubiquitous, the less power they have. And that's important. The point you're raising about the accredited investor rule in the US is certainly a good one because I think the intent of the law obviously was consumer protection. Right. We have people mm -hmm. who are, I think the assumption was made less informed, less yep. well equipped to evaluate the quality of an investment and likely to be targeted. In, in, the, in the 1940s and in the time of like, they literally use the example. It's crazy. They literally talk about like, you walk into a bar and there's a man in the corner smoking a cigar and he sells you railroad stock to a railroad that doesn't exist. So that's why the rules exist. Okay. <laughs> You've built these rules and laws to protect people from being scammed instead of, you know, maybe making the punishment for scamming people much, much harder. Right. Like that. I feel like that's a better approach. But now the year is 2023. The amount of money you have does not give you a disproportionate amount of information. You can be a 16 year old kid spending time on Reddit and learning about a startup and have way more insight and be way better equipped to know if that is a 
good idea, then your parent, who is a doctor, because a doctor is the biggest group of accredited investors in our country are doctors. Yeah. Is a doctor well-equipped to make a metaverse investment decision? Or is their child who grew up playing Roblox or uh, yeah. a, a better equipped person? The kid is better equipped, but the kid's not allowed to participate. The parents are, right? So, so that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And there have been some things. So the rules have changed for the better over the years slightly, but there's still like random proposals that to me are like insanely offensive because they'll say things like, well, how about this? If you're not an accredited investor, you can take a suitability test and see if you're sophisticated enough to make an investment. Because that's like saying, if you're not a millionaire, you're stupid. Or at least if you're not a millionaire, we're not sure if you're smart enough to make an investment, right? Like it's definitely like in this day and age, not a fair assumption. You don't you don't have a, a rule of going into Vegas, which I think investing in startups is is less of a gamble and and better. But there's no uh, there's no suitability test to go to Vegas. There isn't like oh well you can afford to lose the money, so we're gonna let you in. There's no there's nothing like that in any other category in the world. Yeah, we actually had a guest on the program who runs a crypto exchange in Malaysia. It was explaining that in Malaysia everyone has to take a test. That, that makes to, sense in I order mean, to invest. I think it's a either, great idea. Yeah, I'm, and I don't disagree with that. I, I even I think if you treat everyone the same, fine. Then then I can get at least behind the the reasoning. I don't know if it's necessary because we live in a world where you can spend your money at any point in time in on a myriad of irresponsible things. Irresponsible from my perspective, right? And somebody else might say no, right? It, it's not. Because here's the thing, like the disclosures that a uh, wealthy person or that a privately fundraising startup forces an investor to kind of check those boxes and do are legalese blocks of text that nobody is taking seriously. It's like the, the I agree when your iPhone doesn't update. Have you ever read it? No, you don't care, whatever. But the reason why it's these rules and laws are important is because the second a startup raises money in a public way, they are actually on the hook to verify that you're an accredited investor and whatever. So you've added more liability and more hurdles to the company who's creating the jobs, who is generating, who is making the country and world a better place, presumptively. You're making more hurdles for them versus the person who's who's doing it. And so either the person who's making the investment is blocked completely, or it's a private raise, they get a piece of paper, nobody verifies anything, you, you basically sign an I agree, and nobody verifies it ever. And a lot of accredited investors and angel investors aren't actually accredited investors according to the rules and laws because debt cancels out their net worth. And how many people actually have that multi-million dollar net worth and don't have debt? That's why the largest category of accredited investors is doctors because of the how much they make per year. Because you can qualify based on having a net worth or having a high paycheck for a certain period of time. So let's let's change gears here and, and maybe talk about some of the companies that you've invested in recently. I know I know a big big one you were you were sharing on social media was a company called Lunar Crush. What do they do? What got you excited about them? Yeah, so Lunar Crushes is one of the earliest ones we did. It was really exciting. And full disclosure, I'm an investor in Lunar Crush. I'm on the board of Lunar Crush. And I recently led the round of funding in Lunar Crush for us and for the Draper Venture Network. And they're kicking butt and, and, and I love them. So what they do, they started 
100% in the crypto space. And their premise was awesome. It was in the earliest days of crypto. They were crypto nerds like us. And I met them and hung out with them. And they said, now that all these tokens are going live, all this world exists, how do we know what's real? There is no CEO. There is no quarterly earnings report. There is no basic financial analysis of these tokens, right? In our world, it's, is their GitHub active? Are there engineers participating? Is there a community that's actually building or is it just bots posting things online? All of these different ways in which you can get access or understand a public company back then, right? Didn't exist for crypto. But then also pre all of this Reddit craziness and, and uh, Wall Street bets stuff, how do you know that a public stock is also not influenced by public opinion on social media and, and everywhere else? And why should we only judge what's happening there based on the reporting by those companies and based on those quarterly reports or what the CEO says or what or whatever? And so they started building these sort of social listening tools to see what was being said online and ingest all of that content and then filter out the uh, bots or humans who act as bots, right? Because there are certain situations in crypto and, and otherwise where, where people um, do things like that, but also then understand the context and the way in which we speak, right? Because we are starting this whole new industry and we would say things like when moon, right? Or yeah. whatever. And what does that actually mean? If you took normal, just language processing, is that bullish? Is that bearish? Is that good? Is that bad? You know, what happens when, when somebody says, I got rugged? If you just did a normal basic analysis tool, you would never know what that means. And so it's specific to crypto. Over time, right, they understood these things. They were able to show and demonstrate how social media impacts uh, price and movement and, and social sentiment and all these things. They were able to tell you not just if there was more noise about a specific token, right? They can tell you not just here's how many posts about Bitcoin happened today, but they can tell you how many individual people are discussing Bitcoin today on the internet, which then they can compare to yesterday. And you can say 20% more people are talking about Bitcoin today. That's way more important than 20% more posts on the internet about Bitcoin, right? Yeah, that's kind of incredible. So new, new blood in the industry, right? New. So they would do all of these things and then provide you that data in different ways. And they, in my opinion, were the best at doing that in an automated fashion. And now what they've done is they're expanding into other categories. So you can also use this same information. They added later more financial stuff outside of crypto like stocks, but then they did a version of that where now you can compare all the social data that you could on like a stock to anything that's comparable to different football teams, to different political opponents, right? So now you can rank all of the current people running for president in the next election and see probably more importantly than what the polls are telling you based on certain topics, just how many specific individual people are talking about them, whether they're more bullish about one versus the other and things like that. And that's important because we learned, you know, it is a popularity contest. There's a lot more to it than just what's being said publicly and what people realize, right? And we learned that in the public stock market, right? What people are saying online drives price much more than an earnings report, right? We know that in crypto, we've known that for a long time, and I think it's a part of our culture, but the rest of the world is coming up to it. Coinbase stock was a good example of it during the bear. They're correlated to the crypto market 
for purely emotional purposes, but when crypto dumped, more people sold and Coinbase earned more money in the quarters because they earn money on fees. They made more money during some of the times when their price of their stock went down, yeah. right? And that doesn't make sense. It's like saying, you know, record revenue and the stock price is down because it has very little to do with, with the traditional way in which things are. We see it with like GBTC and stuff like that, right? The price of their holdings is worth more than the, the stock price and there's a discount to their holdings. And that's purely because of emotional reasons and because of social sentiment and, and human reasons. And so they're able to analyze those things and do that stuff. And they're growing and changing and doing some cool things. Um, I recommend checking it out. It, it's different than what, you know, Chainalysis does. And, and it's different from a human type of research, but it enables humans to then help make decisions and things like that, which is super fun. We will link to Lunar Crush in the show notes. I'm curious, you know, when you when you first encountered the team behind Lunar Crush, I imagine pretty early stage, what was your involvement in kind of shaping where that product is gone? There's like two things. We get really involved, but the key word in what we do is is amplify. Mm. Because I'll give my opinion and I'll say things. You know, VCs have this weird bad rap at the later stage, especially, right? Where they go, okay, they're on, they request a board seat, they request control, they request these special terms and things like that. And the reason they do that is because if Ian starts getting funny or going the wrong direction, I can twist his arm and, and let him know I'm the boss or I can uh, fire him. I can replace him. I can whatever. I'm not that guy, uh, especially at the early stage. You're a crazy person. If you try to be that person, you start a company yourself if you want to be in control. So to me, it's about giving my opinion, helping brainstorm. I'm an early stage startup guy, so I love that. But also knowing that it's their company, it's their thing and having their back when 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 they make those decisions. These guys are, are rock stars. I mean, when I first met John and Joe and Dan, the three main founders, had a, a fourth guy named Isaac, who's incredible also, but he didn't end up going full time and he's like went back and forth, but they knew what they were doing. And I was a little concerned actually, because their product, like a couple of the guys are really great product guys who actually like wrote a really detailed roadmap. And I was like, the roadmap was almost too detailed. Like it, was, <laughs> it, it scared me a little bit. Like they're running this like a big corporate when it's, you know, three people in an idea, but they understand the space and they understood where it was going. And they also understood that the North Star might be the North Star, but how you get there is going to change along the way. And so then the next time I met with them, they went, hey, you know that thing in the roadmap, we delayed this thing, we changed this thing, we did this. And I realized they can iterate and evolve. So my involvement in the creation of the idea and stuff like that, I can't take any real credit in that sense because these guys really knew what they were doing and, and are incredible. But I was there to help amplify anything that they they were doing and help them along the way and then you know make those connections to, to potential other investors to other partners um, and help them in growth side of things and be there when when they do need me. Yeah. And so even now, having worked with them for years, I still am texting with the founding team every other day. And I end up being in a meeting with them once every two weeks or so. And then in certain times, like when this round of funding was going on, being on with them like every other day and stuff like that. I, and that's generally how it works with all of our companies. Amazing. One of the other companies that I noticed in your portfolio that was interesting was Onera. What, what do they do? Onera is awesome as well. So they're 
they're in that world of, um, you know, tokenization and stuff like that. So it started, it's really funny. We, we actually incubated that company so I can take maybe a little more credit, but Ami Ben David, the CEO is really the driving force. But he came to me at one point and we were debating um, after one of our conferences, I had like a Zoom hang with him. He's based in London. We were debating the idea of can things continue to be tokenized on Ethereum? Are these public blockchains going to work for this kind of stuff? And he was brainstorming this idea about can we have a blockchain specifically built for ownership? That was the, the first premise. And I got excited because one of the things that my crowdfunding company had kind of pivoted into over the years before that was wanting to build a network for raising money on the internet for bigger things like funds and, and institutional products that maybe aren't big enough to have their own websites and things because this was at a time where stuff like that was hard to build and, and it was yeah. different. And so I thought, you know, these smaller funds and institutions institutions are going to raise money on the internet. Maybe we build a private network for it. But it failed miserably in hindsight because nobody trusted us. Part of the secret sauce of the two main people in, in that world is the actual GPs of the funds, like the general partners of the funds, and then the bankers and institutions who help them raise money. And the bankers and institutions, their superpower is their Rolodex. They will not trust it to any third party, no matter what assurances you give them, because that is their bread and butter, right? And then the same with the general partners of the funds and things like that. So what we realized is only people that were like 100% committed to making an investment would come and use that product to then make the investment. And I wanted it to be a destination where you can bring everyone in and show them the docs and all the stuff and the deal rooms and the way things are built now where people are more trustworthy of those things. But if the blockchain existed and I could prove that Ian is the person who introduced Tim Draper to this website and because of that, he will earn his fee no matter which product he invests in on our website. That can exist today in the blockchain world that couldn't exist back then or nobody would have trusted it if, if built something because it's, it's not the same world. So I thought, okay, uh, this idea Ami had, if it existed, I could have built that big company that I was super passionate about. So I got excited about it. We started brainstorming this idea. Onera was created, originally was going to be a blockchain for ownership. That was the first concept, but then it evolved over time. And what we realized is that every institution, every jurisdiction, every type of investor is different and every blockchain is in its own silo. And the first you know, generation of tokenized products would be tokenized on a specific blockchain and only available to purchase on a specific platform, right? Like a, like a T0, right? Or open yeah. finance, right? So imagine if in the traditional world, you had a piece of paper, that's my what I own in a private company. And I can take that piece of paper like people did before Facebook went public and whatever. And with the help of a bank or some bankers, I could sell that piece of paper to somebody else in a very inefficient way. But there was not a lot of constraints other than the legal constraints. Tokenizing was supposed to make things more streamlined and easy. But imagine if you bank at Schwab and you have your money in Schwab and you have your uh, Tesla stock in your Schwab account and you have your 401k and your whatever stuff in your Schwab account. Now, what happens if you want to buy SpaceX stock? But to buy SpaceX stocks, you have to take your money from your Schwab account, wire it to an account at Fidelity because you can only buy SpaceX stock on Fidelity. That's what the first generation of tokenized funds and products were. I had to actually take my money, go and KYC and set up an account at a whole different new bank 
to buy a product at that bank. And I couldn't then send that product to my other bank or whatever. This isn't DeFi. It wasn't like crypto, like a same wallet. This is like having to have an account at different institutions and none of the institutions talk to each other. That actually took this thing that was supposed to be streamlined and made it harder to actually trade. But that technology is really important. It set the stage to where we are today. But what we realized is these things were happening in silos and different blockchains and JP Morgan was going to do things on their chain and a U.S. bank might do things on their chain. But then their customers and products might be in different jurisdictions, too. And one person might be a qualified investor, um, but one other person might not be a qualified investor, but is an accredited investor. And that means they can only participate in certain products. So as Onero was navigating this world, they realized all these things existed and a blockchain wasn't the most important part because there was going to be and there is going to be a lot of different blockchains. And we're seeing that now with with all the L2s and everything else. So that future did come into existence. What they realized is there needs to be an interoperability layer so that if I am a Fidelity customer and I want to buy a product from a Deutsche Bursa private markets tokenized private share of a money market fund, a actual startup, a real estate, piece of real estate, whatever. How can I do that utilizing crypto and have instant settlement? And that is essentially what Onera built. One of the things they just launched the other day was one of my fellow board members in Onera, Nadav, with his LRC group, bought 500,000 British pounds worth of a tokenized money market fund from a group who tokenized it through a different financial institution on a different blockchain than the system Tomnex that he was actually utilizing for his institution. And they were able to do instant settlement literally on stage at a conference. He bought that 500,000 pounds worth of those shares in that company. And it was very anticlimactic because like when technology works, it's like flipping on a light switch. It's done. But it happened and it went cross chain, cross jurisdiction and happened instantly. And that's what's going to enable our industry to flourish, right? The ability to buy not just uh, New York Stock Exchange shares on a specific platform, but shares in every major exchange need to be able to be bought on Robinhood for Robinhood to make sense, right? And that's what's going to happen with these private market groups and institutions, right? U.S. Bank trusts Wells Fargo, at least so much to know that Alon, who might be a U.S. Bank uh, customer, and Ian, who might be a uh, Wells Fargo customer, they've already KYC'd in those places. Those places can verify that each are allowed to participate in a certain kind of transaction, and they can enable that transaction. And then all of the pieces along the way should be and can be automated now with modern technology. So now, you can actually settle these transactions instantly without the human intervention, without all of these pieces, the same way we do DeFi, but across regulated financial institutions. That's what Onera has enabled. And that, I think, is is the Trojan horse to this more borderless world, right? And that's what's going to get really interesting because you'll be able to soon go into your city account. And just like every bank, when you're in your bank account, the technology on that website and on that online system is not 100% proprietary to that bank. It's not a special website that's just belongs to Wells Fargo. When you're in the mortgage section, it's powered by one API. When you're in this section, it's powered by another API. When you're in this section, it's a white labeled product by this company, right? And the interoperability happens through these pipes and APIs and whatever. But even in those things, when you feel like there's instant settlement in your Schwab account and whatever, it's not actually instantly settled. There's a certain amount of calculation Schwab is willing and risk Schwab is willing to take to go, okay, 
okay, I bought because the shares of this company exist in a different place and we're going to act as if it's instantly settled in your account, but it actually is taking four or five days to happen. This is happening instantly. We can have like actual T0 transactions happening across financial institutions globally, which will enable all sorts of interesting things like buying real estate with Bitcoin and the person who owns the real estate doesn't have to accept the Bitcoin. They can accept the dollar. But me as the Bitcoin holder won't have to sell the Bitcoin two dollars, take that risk, pay those fees and then send the, the money, wait the period of time, take the, the execution risk and the, the risk of, of all that stuff. These things can happen instantly. They're building open source interoperability layer, which is important. It's called FinP2P. So people who are in that tokenization world should go look that up. They could build adapters for their systems into it so that when somebody tokenizes the product using your system, they'll be able to sell it and actually have liquidity across the whole industry. Because that's our biggest issue, right? Like you can you can argue that one blockchain versus another is the best technology, but without liquidity and without good products, nobody gives a crap, right? Like nobody will use it. And that's kind of like the historical argument with like programming languages and platforms and whatever, right? You can always argue that one technology is better than the other, but if nobody's using it on the computer side, we don't win. I mean, it's, it's our whole space, yeah. right? We want adoption. We believe it's better. Now is the time to make it happen. It sounds like a fascinating company working on a huge problem, which is very exciting to me. We will make sure to follow it. We've run out of time for our conversation, Alon. It's been it's been fascinating to chat with you. Where can people follow along? Because it seems like you're in the middle of some really exciting um, stuff. Connect with me. Yeah. So we got some new branding done and everything because the original branding for, for DGB was literally like me goofing around when I was creating the, the Google presentation for our investors. So we got new branding that's really great looking and about to launch the new website at dgb.vc. But if you follow me on Twitter, just at Alon Gorin or uh, connect on LinkedIn or, or whatever, you'll, you'll see the updates. And if you have an early stage company, if you have an idea, if you're just getting started and uh, you don't know where to start yet or, or you're just at that crazy early stage, haven't raised any money yet, hit me up. I want to hang out with you. I want to see how I can be helpful and, and please reach out. And, and you could also email me, just alon at dgb.vc. Amazing. We will link all of that in the show notes. Uh, so people can find it there. Alon, thanks so much. It's been great to awesome. chat. Awesome. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor. Open up your podcast app, rate the show, give us a review, tell us what you liked. Even better, you can share the podcast with your friends. And of course, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. I think it was LL Cool J that said it best. Don't call it a comeback. 2023 marks a major comeback for ransomware with record-breaking payments and a substantial increase in the scope and complexity of the attacks. It was a significant reversal from the decline that we saw in 2022. Ransomware actors intensified their operations. They targeted high-profile institutions and critical infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, and government agencies. Major ransomware supply chain attacks were carried out exploiting the ubiquitous file transfer software MoveIt that impacted companies ranging from the BBC to British Airways. As a result of those attacks and many others, ransomware gangs reached an unprecedented milestone, surpassing $1 billion in extorted cryptocurrency payments from victims in 2023. To see the full report, and especially this preview on ransomware from the 2024 Crypto Crime Report, just head down to the show notes where you can find a link.